0: Welcome to the Online Fraudcast. I'm Karine Hendrick. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud and as you may have noticed, I am solo. (laughs) Those of you who have listened for a long time know that this is very uncomfortable for me, which is why Brett completely threw me under the bus on the last episode, basically holding me accountable, saying that I would be doing this because he knew that that would be the best way to get me to do this episode that on chargebacks that a lot of our listeners have asked for. And I appreciate that about him. Unfortunately, I was traveling all week for work. I went to the MAG conference, uh, which is pretty heavily payments focused, both for in-person payments as well as card not present. And I I took my very heavy microphone um, all the way to Fort Lauderdale from Seattle and had zero time to use it. I had a 17 hour day, a 14 hour day, and then I had a half day because I had to go to the airport afterwards. So it was very, very busy. So I apologize that this is a little bit late, later than I definitely wanted to release it but hopefully better late than never. A couple administrative things before I kick off into what a lot of you know is my favorite subject. Don't forget the contest that we're running until the end of March. If you like us on Facebook, review us on Facebook, which I know I really need to get back to updating. If you share one of our posts on LinkedIn about the Frogcast, as well as if you review, post a review about us on iTunes, you'll be entered to win one of five one-hour consulting sessions with both Brett and I. We think that that's a pretty good prize. It's actually not something that we typically do, though we have done that before when it's been asked of us. So, We thought that that would be fun also don't forget that we will be the opening keynote at cmp expo 2019 this year in san francisco may 21st to the 23rd i was getting it confused with another event that i'm going to later in march we if you use the promo code f Cast, which <laughs> Brett thinks is pretty hilarious, you will get 10% off and right now it's early bird registration. So that's a good deal as well as you'll be entered to be eligible for either a one hour consulting session with Brett. I will be way too busy to be able to sit on, on those unfortunately. And also we are having fun t-shirts made at least I think they're fun t-shirts made about the frog cast that will be available for purchase soon but for every person whether you're a merchant or a solution provider or industry expert, for every person that uses the FCAS promo, you will get a t-shirt sent to you and you can choose to wear it at the event or not. Once we have those all done, I we will post them online. Know that there's a couple extra things that we wanted to sweeten the pot with because we really want to see all of our listeners at CMP Expo. I just think that that would be so much fun. Obviously, we're a little selfish there. Okay, so we got all that out of the way now to talk about my favorite subject i put a little smiley face on my outline when i said that because <laughs> i'm always thinking like gosh everyone's gonna be questioning my sanity even more than usual when i admit that i really love chargebacks and let me explain that's how i started my my career in the industry those of you who have heard me talk about my career path before know that i worked for a merchant processor and quickly moved my way up into the fraud department and the risk department, which A lot of what I had to do was work with merchants that were on the excessive chargeback monitoring list and help them reduce their chargebacks. And that was without viewing their customer information or anything. So I learned a lot of tips and tricks there. And what I really learned there is that you can reduce the volume of chargebacks as well as there is such thing as a right and wrong way to respond. So I'm going to try to dive into as much of this as possible. I've literally created a chargeback 101 four hour training session on this before. I don't know if it's in circulation anymore. I create it for MRC. And I know that there have been revisions and that they've offered it at their conferences in the past since then. But so I can literally talk about this for four hours. In fact, one year we had so many people register for the four hour training that we had to do it back to back. So I talked about chargebacks for eight hours plus during the hour of lunch. I can obviously talk about a lot for a long time. There's so much to cover on chargebacks. Just to kind of, those of you who, again, who have heard me talk, you guys know I don't like to brag, but I did think that it would be important to provide some of my chargeback achievements because I think that so many people look at chargebacks and get overwhelmed and don't understand them. And that's super understandable considering the fact that They're not exactly common sense. And I know that most people didn't start out their career in this industry with over six months of training on the rules and regulations of Visa and MasterCard. So I know that that's a bit of a disadvantage compared to my history. I wanted to be able to say some of the stuff is probably going to seem unachievable. And I just wanted to be able to provide some context that I've done this many, many times for big and small companies in different ways. A lot of you know that I worked with Mark Zuckerberg directly when he first started Facebook 12 years ago. I told him he needed to have somebody reviewing transactions before they went live, especially for advertisements, because that's where the fraud was. And he told me that he literally only had two employees in his loft apartment. So I definitely and I helped him. So they were on pretty significant month of the ECMPs. And I worked with them to get them off of the chargeback monitoring list and obviously they didn't get their visa mastercard privileges shut down so that was a win i also reduced chargebacks by over 97 in the in about 18 months when i was at bag borrower steel and remember it wasn't just fraud it was also a lot of friendly fraud it was in the middle of the recession ebay was at its height a lot of people were renting in quotation marks handbags and then not returning them But also a lot of chargebacks were filed as well, both for fraud and friendly fraud. Pretty proud of that. That was actually the first opportunity that I got to take the lessons that I learned at the merchant processor and apply them to a merchant and it worked and because it worked so well that was the first topic that I spoke at um, the Merchant Risk Council in 2010 and it was a chargeback I think they called it chargebacks from A to Z or something like that and it was the morning after St. Patrick's Day in Vegas at 9am and the reason they put me there is because I was so terrified to speak I and mean, I you know, did slides and everything, but I was really worried. It was a full room. Some people were still drunk. I think I've mentioned that before, which was kind of entertaining. It's obviously a topic that a lot of people cared about. And the reason I did that, and the reason why I thought it was important to speak about back then is that I attended that conference in 2009 and was in a room of all merchants and I mean this was back when the conference was like less than 200 people and now it's you know over a thousand and we're in a room of merchants and people were just complaining about chargebacks but weren't doing anything about it and if anyone knows me personally you know that (laughs) complaining about something and not doing something about it can be a bit of a pet peeve of mine. I was like you guys like it's not that hard i've figured it out that's what i created that and i kind of (laughs) got known as the chargeback girl for a while and was on the chargeback committee that's no longer around but was back then i created a friendly fraud chargeback process for expedia saved several million in a year and they're still using it as of just a few months ago when i spoke with someone last uh that worked there and this was back in 2010 when friendly fraud was just rising up and There really wasn't anything set in stone. I just, I don't know. I have a weird brain for chargebacks, guys. Like, it feels weird, but I feel like Rain Man sometimes. But they just make sense in my head. And it makes sense to me how to reduce them and how to respond them. Because I understand the rules. I created the very first chargeback platform and process for Etsy when they first started processing charges for their for their customers so prior to that it was just PayPal to PayPal between the buyer and seller I helped them with that they actually attended the chargeback 101 session that I did and asked me to consult for them for a few months I when I went into consulting at first I started out saying like I can do everything and I and I probably can I mean I helped a pretty large company, save over $5 million a year in processing fees, just knowing, you know, the right fees structure and knowing that they had not negotiated in several years. And with their volume, I knew that they could do that on their current contract with their current processor. And I was doing a bunch of other stuff too on fraud and other things. And then I decided, what do I really like most? Like what projects am I loving? And what projects am I like? And really it was chargebacks. I just love it. I love Seeing a problem, creating a solution, seeing it in fruition. Chargebacks give you a really clear idea of if you're doing it right or not because you can watch the metrics. I also love a challenge and love kind of figuring out, okay, if I do this, then what happens? And so I started really focusing on chargebacks in my consultancy. And I've done, I've just had some really good wins. I'm really grateful and and proud of it. I helped a digital goods company with a really unique business model increase their win rate by over 60% and decrease their incoming chargebacks by um, over 30%. I think it was closer to 40%. And they were responding to chargebacks on their own. They needed a little help. And so I created custom templates for them. And that's how they got to the 60%. I recently worked with a fortune 100 company and they had been working with a large chargeback response company prior to that. That and for various reasons were not satisfied. So we kind of did a Pepsi challenge a little bit comparing the win rates with their the chargeback company's templates and their process and their people responding. And then I actually helped them create a automated way to dispute chargebacks internally. They had a lot of engineering resources, so lucky for that. I was able to help them increase their win rates just on fraud chargebacks, fraud reason co chargebacks by over thirty percent. Over those win rates with the large chargeback company. I've also reduced incoming chargebacks by over 25% and counting because that was a pretty recent company that I've worked with for a pretty large digital goods company as well. So I certainly am not tooting my own horn at all. I just really thought that it would be important knowing that sometimes people look at me like I'm crazy when I tell them how I deal with chargebacks I mean I don't think it's that crazy but it's just so confusing and not really anything anyone provides training on yet before I go into all that I just wanted to say it works and that's really what all of that was about so first I thought that it'd be important to kind of have an overview of the chargeback process and it's going to be a little difficult without a whiteboard or slides but bear with me so if we take end to end the customer cardholder contacts the bank to dispute the charge typically the rule of thumb is within 120 days from the transaction that varies a little bit by reason code so for example if the cardholder is claiming that they didn't receive an item that 120 day clock generally starts counting from the last time that the customer tried to contact your company and it's on an honor system so they could say that they tried to contact you three months after the transaction, which then gives them another four months. I don't see that being abused very often. It is just, you know, important to note that. So they contact their bank to dispute the charge. The issuer files a charge back on their end. There's some stuff that they have to do on their end. And admittedly, I don't really know what that is because I've never worked on the issuer side, but I know it can take a week or two until the merchant processor is notified. So once the merchant processor is notified, The merchant is notified. Amex and Discover, the way I like to explain it is that they ask questions and then they take the money if there's no answer or if that answer, if based on the information you provide, they decide that the cardholder should get their money back, then that's when they debit you. Whereas with Visa and MasterCard, they take the money and ask questions at the same time. So if it's a $100 chargeback, you're going to be debited for the chargeback probably the morning before you get the notification that there's a chargeback. You, depending on your processor, you have two to three weeks to respond to that chargeback and really provide any information from your side that disputes the customer's claim. So for example, the easiest example to use is the customer claims that their card was stolen. You can prove that AVS was matched. It was shipped to the address with AVS. You've got tracking information, all these other things. You can prove that the cardholder did it. That would be a good situation where you'd respond. And on most chargeback notifications from your processor, they list the documentation that is required for disputing to that chargeback. It used to say assigned swipe sales draft. I don't believe they do that anymore because they finally realized, oh, the Internet doesn't have those. You don't swipe a card for the Internet and you don't get a signature from the cardholder. But really, that goes to a deeper problem of the fact that, you know, the Internet payment processing was really built on the same rails as brick and mortar payment processing. So. We kind of inherited a few things that um, have had to be revised over the years. When you're responding to the chargeback it's I think it's really important to know who your first audience is. It's not the issuer and it's not the cardholder. I have literally seen response documentation of merchants like writing an angry letter to the cardholder like dear John you know you made this purchase. Da, 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 da. <laughs> like John may never see that but it is important to note that some issuers do provide the documentation back to their cardholders, So you do want to be careful and kind of stick to the facts and be professional. You definitely don't want a screenshot of those or a picture of that posted on Twitter. Just something to keep in mind there. But your first audience is the merchant processor. So they're looking at what you provide them and determining if it's within the rules and regulations of what can be responded to in a chargeback. If they believe that it is, if they believe you have a chance to win, then they send it to the issuer most processors at that point issue a first-time win to you. So that's why you'll see that you get the money back and you'll get a first-time win. And a lot of merchants think like, sweet, okay, we won the chargeback. We'll go on with our life. But it goes on to the issuer. And the issuer is also looking at the rules and regulations. But really from their own perspective, they want their cardholder to be found in favor because they want their cardholder to be happy and keep using their card, So the issuer, you know, is going to review those response documents in accordance with the rules and regs, just like your processor did, but they both have their own kind of spin on it because of who they're representing. The networks aren't really looking at these chargebacks with the, with a slight change there with vcr the visa claims resolution system all of those chargebacks are being entered into a common portal in a way and visa's collecting that data and reviewing the transactions but they're not making the decision i really compare it to like an intramural basketball game So if you, if you or someone you know ever plays basketball at the Y or at a local basketball, the where doesn't matter, but they're playing basketball with their friends. There's no referee, but everybody kind of knows and agrees upon the basketball rules. But if you're the one being accused of a foul, you may not think it's a foul. Whereas if you're the one that was fouled, you really believe it's a foul, but you have to work it out amongst yourselves based on the shared rules that you both have to follow whereas if you lose a chargeback and you decide to go through the arbitration process that is when Visa and MasterCard reviews all the documentation for both sides the reason why not many companies do that is because there's an excessive there's just so many fees associated to that and the loser has to pay the fees so it's such a big risk that really I only advise merchants do that when it's big ticket and you really feel confident in the documentation. Documentation you're providing. One of the customers that I listed off just a minute ago, one of my consulting clients decided. To that, it was worth the risk because they had pretty high ticket but low profit margins. So, say they might make $5 on the transaction, but if the transaction comes back as a chargeback, they're responsible for the $1,000 transaction or the $2,000 transaction. So, it was important to them to try everything they could. And so, they really wanted to send a few chargebacks to the arbitration process. And admittedly, I was skeptical because the best practices I'd always been told is. Don't do arbitration. But I worked with them to create the right documentation based on the rules on arbitrations. And they've lost all but two. Um, and it's well exceeded. How much they've gotten back has well exceeded the fines that they and the fees that they've had to pay the couple times that they lost. So it really is situational. But I would just say that it's the rules. I'm I'm not... I'm no longer saying like don't ever do an arbitration. I'm just saying... Be cautious and um, only do it when you really feel like you have a very strong case to win. So, back to kind of the original, you know, in the chargeback flow, the first time chargeback flow, if the issuer agrees, if they're looking at the documentation from you, or the merchant, or just from the merchant, um, and they agree, yep, you know what, that's within the rules, then that first time stays. You don't necessarily get a notice saying, congratulations, you get to keep your money forever, but you do get, and, and you don't even get really a response, but You know, After 30 days, if that hasn't come back as a second time, then that would be what I would consider a win. If it comes back as a second time chargeback, then that money is debited from your account. And really the only recourse is arbitration, as I just mentioned, or you can send them to collections. That's definitely your right. And there are some merchants who have made that business decision. Um, When I worked at Expedia, one of the layers that we put in place for the friendly fraud process I created was... If we lost a chargeback that was on confirmed friendly fraud, we would send them to collections. And the goal wasn't necessarily to have them Pay the money back. I mean, that was always nice, but really, it was in the middle of the recession, and a lot of people had figured out how to get a free trip, and they'd tell five friends. So we we're really just trying to say, like, hey, we're on to you. We know you did this. Don't do it again. And it was pretty effective, especially at the time. I've also at Bag Bar Steel, we'd have people who had issued chargebacks, and then they would still have our merchandise in their possession. And sometimes it would be like 50000 dollars worth of merchandise. So we in addition to collections, um, which was not just for the money that was charged back but also for the goods they had in their possession. Um, for a few cases, we actually put liens on mortgages and garnished wages. They were very select cases. And by the time we sent them to our lawyer who specialized in that, we <laughs> I knew everything about that person and verified that, you know, it really was them and all of that. But those are things that are just options for you. I would say if you're not really doing a lot about your chargebacks right now, that isn't a place to start. But it is something to just know. I think a lot of merchants feel like, oh, if I lose, then that's it. And I've lost the money and the product and the fees. Just know that there there is another option if you ever want to consider it. But it is a a business decision that has to be made. Also, I know that probably for almost all of you that are merchants, fraud chargebacks are way higher and most common than anything else. That doesn't always mean that you have a really bad fraud problem. The fraud reason code has really become the catch-all for chargebacks. In that sense, I believe it was around 2013 when changes were made to the rules on fraud chargebacks. So, It used to be that if a cardholder claimed fraud and chargebacks were issued, that that card had to be canceled and that the cardholder had to fill out an affidavit. It was called an affidavit of fraud. And they basically were saying, I solemnly swear I don't know if that was really in the verbiage but they're basically saying like hey I do I promise that this is true and I'm not lying and that my card was out of my possession and it was stolen starting in 2013 the I believe that was when fraud started to really catch up I think the issuers were like ah this is taking too long to wait for the affidavit to be signed so and I'm sure you know Visa and MasterCard had a hand in it as well I don't I wasn't in the room and making those decisions so this is purely only speculation for whatever reason they took that uh, requirement away, and since then I've seen fraud chargebacks really skyrocket. And I think that some of that's because of EMV and because frauds increased, but it's also because now fraud chargebacks are the easiest one to file, not only for the cardholder but for the bank. And if you think about if cardholders are calling the bank to issue a chargeback, that person at the call center is probably judged on how fast they get off the call. So are they going to want to have to ask all these questions about when, when were you hoping to receive the pro- the product? Why, you know, have you checked the tracking number? Are you sure you didn't get it? All of these questions, you know, what is the tracking number? What were you getting? and a lot of those chargebacks have those kind of questions and sometimes they require the the cardholder to actually write out a statement the whole thing with that is that that takes up time so a call center employee might be like eh i'll just do fraud reason code because it's easy also a lot of times a customer is just calling a cardholders just calling their bank to find out what they purchased so especially at big retailers that have multiple items, like what did I buy at this company? And the banks don't know that. But, when I, but a lot of times when a cardholder asks to inquire about a purchase, it becomes a chargeback. There are a couple solutions in place. One from Visa, but it's not up yet. Um, and a lot of issuers, most issuers aren't participating in it yet, but there are two other products from the companies that have chargeback alerts that are out there that actually give the issuers a way to check your system to see what was purchased to hopefully detour a chargeback. Happy to talk about those things offline if you have any questions about those. But that is another reason why those fraud chargebacks are higher. Also, I recently heard that some of the card brands that are advertising these price guarantees. So, you know, if you made a purchase on a Monday and by Friday it's $20 off, you can call your credit card company and they'll nicely give you a price adjustment. Well, that's great, except for the fact that in some cases, those are actually turning into fraud chargebacks to the the merchant. I don't know if that's necessarily time to all go to the issuing banks with pitchforks. I don't think that's the case, but I do think it's important to know. So a lot of people assume that everything that's in the fraud bucket is fraud. I just wanted to kind of explain that it's not. And that's why I think it's important to be looking at your fraud chargebacks to really have a way to determine, is this really fraud and do we put this in our fraud system or is this friendly fraud? Because if you're putting friendly fraud stuff in your fraud system, you're not only mucking up your system and causing problems, it can also be a huge problem for consortiums as well. So, you know, purity of data is important, but also just reporting up to your company. They could be looking at that like, wow, fraud department, why do you have so many fraud chargebacks? Well... Uh, This is totally a rule of thumb. It varies by company big time, but I found anywhere from 40 to 70% of the fraud reason code chargebacks being friendly fraud, meaning that the cardholder was somehow participating in the transaction. Another thing that I wanted to make sure I note is once you receive a chargeback from Visa and MasterCard, do not issue a refund. There's a listener that knows I'm talking to them. And yes, this means you have to buy your chargeback analyst lunch. I got a LinkedIn message shortly before I got really sick with pneumonia from one of our listeners saying, hey, my chargeback analyst and I are having an argument. I say that we need to issue a refund as soon as we get the chargeback. They say we shouldn't. What do I do? Here's the thing. Once that money has been debited from your account, and if you issue a refund to the cardholder through the traditional channels, there's a strong chance that you just gave that your cardholder back their money twice. A lot of times Visa So your processor will most likely look to see if a refund's already been issued before they send you the chargeback, which is um, why alerts are something that a lot of companies do. And I'll be talking about them a little more in a few minutes. It's also the fact that once an, a been issued, it's difficult to you'd basically have to prove that you issued a refund and hope that they reverse it. And in a lot of times they do, but that's a risk that you're taking. And every document from Visa and MasterCard and all of their best practice stuff, which <laughs> don't worry, guys, I've read it for you. I know it's a snooze fest, but I find them fascinating. It always says don't issue a refund because of that there is that chance. If you want to accept the chargeback so and plus also that chargeback is already counted against you once a chargeback has been issued to you and you've gotten notification that's counting towards your one percent so if you're issuing a refund after the chargeback's been issued you're not erasing it in that case if you're looking at it and you're like oh yeah that really was fraud then if it's a visa then you just go in and accept the chargeback because there are some fees associated with how quickly you respond. If you aren't accepting fraud chargebacks then you could be paying as much as 75 cents a chargeback in addition to all your fees because you didn't accept the chargeback. That's Visa's way of trying to make sure that you're doing it fast so that there's not as much money in limbo to cardholders for provisioned chargeback funds. Just something to note there, It don't issue refunds. <laughs> That's the takeaway there. All right so now that we've gotten a little bit of of the overview of the process and some of the ins and outs and the rules, I'm going to dive into my chargeback philosophy. And really, I don't think it's rocket science, but it sure feels like it sometimes because I think I'm one of the only people that has this philosophy. But really, I believe in a one-two punch. The first punch is reducing your chargebacks. The second punch is responding correctly. As far as reduction goes, there's two different ways to reduce your chargebacks, the fastest way to reduce chargebacks. So when I have a client who is on the excessive chargeback monitoring program, I will suggest that because time is of the essence that they implement chargeback alerts. There are two different companies that do them. I believe everyone knows who they are. You guys know that we have a policy not to really shout out company names unless like you know, we're talking about a person at a company or something like that. Because I know we've done that with SIF Science before. <laughs> but with most companies, we don't. In other situations, when it comes to talking about the product, we really try hard not to shout out for various reasons. But there are two companies that do alerts. They both do them in different ways. So one is a little more fraud focused and looking at the TC40 reports, which It's a whole other story, but I did write, it's a huge, long subject, but I did write an article for CMP about TC40 reports a few years ago. I'm sure it's probably in the archive somewhere. And they're really looking at fraud chargebacks, whereas the other one is looking at different reason codes, more service-related reason codes. And that's through relationships with the banks. I should say they both have relationships with the banks. They're just looking at different things. They're also they're alerting you on a chargeback. You know, I said that there's like a one to two week window when the issuer gets the call about the chargebacks from when you find out about it during that window. That's when you have a chance. You'd get an alert. Usually it depends on the company and their coverage, but usually it's around 30 to 40 percent of your chargebacks. So it's not all of them, but you'll receive an alert saying that the chargeback is on its way and you have generally 24 hours to issue a refund. There's no recourse in responding to the chargeback. It's simply you issue a refund so that that chargeback doesn't hit your ratio going back a little bit I probably should have talked about like the impact of chargebacks to a business I always assume everyone knows about it you probably do but the rule of thumb there's a little bit more creative math to it but the rule of thumb is you want to keep your chargebacks under one percent both on Visa and MasterCard so one percent on Visa one percent on MasterCard the way you calculate that is the number of chargebacks you've received this month divided by the number of sales you've had this month on each card brand for Visa and MasterCard Amex and Discover do have chargeback overview monitoring programs, but they're really hard to get on and it's they're really not as common, especially since those cards aren't as common. So I'm just going to be focusing on Visa and MasterCard uh, for the most part from here on out. So that's part of it, the 1% ratio, and they basically give you... Uh, nine to 10 months to get your chargebacks under 1%. If you don't, then you uh, by about month three or four, you're starting to get fined. And by eight, month eight, and nine, it, there's a direct possibility that you're having a conversation with Visa or MasterCard about whether you'll be able to accept those credit cards again or not. Uh, but the fees and fines are crippling alone, as well as you also get more declines if you have more chargebacks. A lot of people don't know that, but especially on fraud chargebacks, um, and it kind of goes back to the TC40 report that I mentioned just a minute ago, banks, especially smaller banks are looking out for their cardholders as well as for themselves. And so they're, if they see that there's a merchant, especially it happens a lot with digital goods with lower price points that having a lot of fraud instances made against them, a lot of those smaller banks will just not authorize the charge. So if one of their cardholders goes to your website, every one of those charges will be declined. And when I have merchants who say like, hey, how do we know if we're on the, if issuers are declining all of our purchases? If you do a bin search on your authorization logs then you can be able to see like oh wow every single authorization request from this first six digits of cards are being declined and that's when you know you try to reach out to the issuer and that's again a whole other subject like i said i can talk about this for a while i've only i've only gotten through about one third of what i want to talk about and we're already at 35 minutes and our general rule of thumb is 45 minutes to an hour long so I'm going to try to get through this stuff. No surprise. I knew I'd be nerding out. All right. So I talked about the fastest way to reduce chargebacks. Those are on specific transactions. The other way is kind of more around behavior. And it's really reduction uh, via root cause analytics. That's kind of what I call it. But looking at your chargebacks and figuring out why are they happening to then look at the behavior of your customers, as well as are there patterns that we're actually kind of accidentally creating chargebacks. Is there something we're doing that's causing this? And is there something we can do to change it? Um, Really, that 1% ratio that the cardholders set is because in their perspective, chargebacks are something that merchants can reduce. I agree with them to a certain extent. A lot of chargebacks, when I start digging through the data, are things that the merchant could have done differently. Could they have implemented a new fraud tool, put new layers in? Absolutely. Or is it things that they're not describing the product very well? Or they have a policy that's basically not making their cardholders, but encouraging their cardholders to contact their bank for their money back because they can't contact the merchant the banks believe that there's a lot that you can do to prevent your chargebacks which is why they have these in place that also means that you need to be looking at how to reduce your chargebacks do you have the right reporting in place to know where your chargebacks are coming from and you know what makes them similar are you diving into that are you looking at things and going what kind of process improvement can we put in either in our department or within the company to reduce this volume. I always tell people that I firmly believe that chargebacks are your company's check engine light. They're telling you what's going on. They're telling you, hey, that you might have a customer service problem, or you might have a description problem, or you might have a shipping and logistics problem. You have to follow the trail. You have to, in quotation marks, take it to the mechanic or get under the hood and figure out what's, what's really going on. But that check engine light is saying, hey, check something out. Like there's a reason why these are happening. And I just think that so few merchants do that because they just, you know, consider them a cost of doing business or they're confusing and they don't know where to start. So they just don't start or they hire someone else to take care of it, which is not wrong. It's just you are the best one that knows your business. If you're looking at your chargebacks, you can probably guess what's going on because you know all the policies and you know your systems, whereas somebody else may not. That said, I mean, obviously I I work with merchants to dive into this, but (laughs) you know, there's a difference between asking someone to help you and just handing it off to someone else to deal with forever. A couple examples of things that I've seen merchants kind of do to themselves. I was talking to a merchant a couple months ago that said like, our chargebacks have just skyrocketed overnight. We don't understand. And so I said, well, what, what's the reason code? What are, what are customers saying? And are you able to see the cardholder documentation, which is a whole other subject but just a side note all issuers provide your processors or all processors with cardholder documentation and sometimes they're really boring and other times it's the customer's account of what happened But a lot of processors, especially these days, aren't passing these on to merchants. It's definitely worth a conversation with your processor if you can obtain these. I know that a lot of it has to do with data and just how big the files are and them making business decisions. But maybe if enough merchants ask for it, maybe that'll get a project on their roadmap for a way to provide those to you. So anyway, I was talking to this merchant who had had their chargeback skyrocket And I was like, any policy changes? And he said, oh, well, we did invoke a 20% restocking fee on anything that's returned. And I said, okay, well, is that posted on your website anywhere, like on the checkout page or anywhere? Well, no. Is that in your terms and conditions? No. The CEO just kind of decided to do it on a whim. Okay, so you have really high ticket items. If you bought something for $2,000 and it didn't work, and you returned it, and you were only given a sixteen. I think it was like a twenty percent restocking fee, so sixteen hundred dollar refund. And you didn't know why because you weren't given a heads up. What would you do? <laughs> and unfortunately, what was happening a lot is it wasn't just a partial refund; it was a full chargeback. So, or not a partial chargeback for just the you know four hundred dollars. It was for the full amount. So, if that merchant didn't respond and dispute it, then they've now given back the customer. 3600 for a $2,000 item. That's Those are things that are important and that can be a big hit. Once I kind of turned it back on him, he was like, oh, yeah, I can see why our chargebacks are skyrocketing now. Because if you don't give the customer any other option, they a lot of them know, oh, well, my bank takes care of me. They don't know that you're the one giving the money back to the bank. They just think, wow, my bank is amazing. They take care of it. So no biggie. So that's one example. Another one is I worked with a subscription company uh, several months ago, and they had high chargebacks as well. And they made it literally impossible for a customer to cancel. And they, they had verbiage that said that you were signing up for a one-year contract for recurring, which actually by Visa and MasterCard rules, there's only a couple types of merchants that can do that where there's a recurring fee for a required time limit. Things like paying off your taxes or installments if there's a physical good. So like if there was a physical good shipped to you and you're leasing it, you can do that. So anyway, they couldn't do that. So once we were able to change that and make cancellations easier, actually their customer service went up quite a bit. I mean, a lot of these things are customer service issues. And if you think that only a small percentage of your customers are issuing chargebacks and the other percentage are just going to your competitor, it's a big deal. That's why this check engine light is important to look at. And if you're just responding to chargebacks or you're, you know, you've hired someone else to respond to chargebacks, then you're never going to reduce your chargebacks on a big scale. And that's something that my philosophy differs with a lot of people and a lot of companies, and that's okay, this is just something that I've really seen worked out. This is the best way, like looking at root cause analysis is also the best way to reduce friendly fraud. You can really you know, look at the behavior to figure out what's causing it and also what type of friendly fraud you're having. Is it family fraud where, you know, a lot of online gaming companies have a lot of, you know, kids that borrow or maybe their parents put their card in for one purchase, but then they just keep using it over and over again? Or is it buyer's remorse or is it people claiming they didn't get the item? Recently, I worked with a merchant who a lot of their chargebacks were coming in on accounts that had made several purchases before. And so it was like, oh, okay, so they probably just spent too much. And they're going back. Now they're trying to reverse every charge they possibly can within the time limit. Sometimes banks will do that as well. They'll just be like, oh, I see you have five charges for that merchant. I'll just And they're all within the last 120 days. I'll just respond to all of them. Or I'll just file a chargeback on all of them. I think that that stuff's important to know, not to try to get you riled up for the banks, but because I think it's important that if you are contacting the customer or you're putting them on their neg- your negative list, that they know that that you know that the customer may not know that a chargeback was issued, and they probably don't know the chargeback liability rules that you're the one that paid them, not the bank. So if you are contacting customers about these things or you're putting them on the negative list, just keep that in mind that maybe six, seven years ago, it was more likely for the cardholder to participate in filing the chargeback. That's not the case anymore, especially since affidavits are no longer required for fraud. That also just reminds me that I forgot to mention that there's no real accountability on reason codes for issuers. So while I drill down into reason codes quite often to try to get a good idea of what types of chargeback issues a merchant is having, Before I dive in any deeper for the analysis portion, I always know that they're not gonna be exact. Because there's no accountability to issuers for selecting the right reason code. That's something that I took up with Visa and MasterCard for years when I had a direct line to them in a former role. And it's just not a high priority. <laughs> it maybe one day it'll change, but uh, yeah, it's not going to anytime soon. All right. So we're on like the second punch, so to speak. And I heard an interesting kind of anecdote the other day. And I put two and two together and I was like, oh, that's like me in chargebacks. <laughs> Which I don't think that Chinese kick boxing and chargebacks have anything in common other than how I thought of this I was out to dinner with a client at the conference a couple days ago and he was talking about how he had read the four-hour work week that's obviously not a book that I have read because I think I've worked over 80 um, well over 80 hours this week in fact it's nine o'clock at night on a Saturday, and I'm sitting in my office recording this podcast because I've been that busy. Also, in fact, there's at least one company that's listening to this going, okay, Crease, you had an hour to talk about chargebacks. We're still waiting for our custom templates. <laughs> and I mean, literally, I I really pride myself on always meeting deadlines and over exceeding. And it's just the last few weeks with being sick has really put me over the edge. But yeah, so I haven't read that book, obviously. But apparently the guy who wrote the book is well known for winning a national title in Chinese kickboxing. I'm not going to even try. It would be very disrespectful to the Chinese language if I tried to say what it's called. But he learned so basically, like he's this white guy that he didn't, you know, a lot of people train for this for years and years and years. And on a dare, he entered this national competition and he read all the rules and he found not necessarily loopholes, but he found ways to win that nobody had ever done before because that was because that was never the way you did it. So, for instance, there was a rule that said that you weigh in the night before You fight well, you know, your weight class is important, so he basically dehydrated himself the night before, and then the next day he put on like almost 20 pounds in just liquid, and now he's 20 pounds heavier than the guy he's fighting. So that's one. Two, he found out that there's a rule that if you push your opponent out of the ring. A certain number of times, I can't remember if it was two or three times, you automatically win by default. So he basically just start, started shoving people <laughs> out of the ring. The way that I, I, this is how my brain works, so I know that it's really weird, but I was like, oh, that's kind of the way I've done chargeback representments. I know the rules so well that I I feel like I've created these templates, you know, the basis templates that I have that can really, I mean, I call them magical, but really they are very effective, and it's because I know what verbiage to use. I know what documentations to use. I know how to do this and that. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, it's like Rain Man. I just get it. Every single client I've worked with has like more than paid for me in just a couple months, and their ROI, like the ROI, is huge. Um, I also believe in in having pretty low pricing for my consulting for merchants. That's why I have to long-term contracts with other companies, um, CMP included, as well as the FinTech company I've mentioned recently, that's working to change the way merchants and issuers work together. And it's something I really believe in. But working with those companies on a long-term basis allows me to be able to be a little bit less predatory with my pricing when it comes to merchants. Because you guys have my heart and you know that super cheesy but i've been a merchant and i get it so with all of that said that's my (laughs) my very strange analogy about how Carice with chargebacks is like chinese kickboxing but it made sense in my head (laughs) so basically i know that we're a little over 45 minutes in but i think that this part's really important so i'm just gonna keep powering through It's really important to respond the right way. Part of responding to chargebacks the right way is to not respond to everything. A lot of people think that they subscribe to the let's throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks method. And I understand that from like a common sense perspective, but knowing the rules and knowing the process. I used to sit next to the chargeback department at the processor I worked for. I know what documentation goes into the blue plastic filing cabinet or the recycle bin. And I know what works and doesn't work because of all those experiences. And so I know that if merchants respond all the time, it not only increases their second time chargebacks, which I made a bit of a splash on LinkedIn over the summer, Because up until that point, I was under the impression, because I had been told that many times, it was true at one time, just for the record, that second time chargebacks counted against your ratio. What I learned through eating some humble pie and also talking to a lot of people going, oh, okay, I... I definitely don't ever want to say any wrong information. So talking to a lot of other people, it's that MasterCard is a self-reporting ratio. So your merchant processor may loop in second time chargebacks when reporting to MasterCard on your ratio. But that's not always the case for or for for everyone. And Visa does it themselves. So. That's not the case, but it does increase your second time chargebacks, which does increase your fees. So if you have a $15 chargeback fee and you're fighting a $100 chargeback that you know is probably true fraud, you've already paid $115 on that chargeback, right? Because you're paying it back to the, the cardholder and the $15 fee for the first time. If you respond to it, you might get that $100 back for a little bit, but then they're gonna come back and deduct it and now you're out $130. That's one reason. The other reason is, if you are sending everything over to your merchant processor and knowing that your merchant processor is your very first audience, it's a lot harder for them to know, okay, this might be something I should respond and push on to the issuer if they're getting responses for everything if they start to know that okay this merchant really only sends us good stuff and they don't respond to all of it they're more likely to look at the details and read those read your documentation rather than just oh my gosh they respond to everything so how am I supposed to know if this is for the rules or not and that's another thing I try to create the templates so that I know exactly what they need to look at in what order and the way the verbiage that they speak and know and all that stuff so that is very important as well those are things I'm not going to give away on the- a podcast because I would still like to make a living at helping merchants reduce their chargeback. There are some things I'm holding back and there's a huge part of me that hates doing that. But I really hope that this is all enough information for free that it helps a lot of you. I and mean, I don't want anyone to feel like they have to hire me. In fact I probably can't take on a new project for another month or two. But really that's just why how my templates work i think it's important for everyone to have templates of some way and you can look up a lot of that information you know yourselves on the visa and mastercard websites as well they don't have it as cleanly put as some of the collateral that i've created for my clients but it's there really respond to what you think you can win so when you're not responding to everything, just respond to the stuff that you have based on the documentation that you have and what's required for that reason code. For instance, if the cardholder is claiming that they didn't get the item, and you don't have a tracking number, or if it was sh- if it was rerouted, or if it was shipped to a different address or whatever, that isn't worth your time. In fact, you're just increasing your fees and wasting your own resources as well. That's one part of responding the right way. Like I just said, use templates. So for mine, I make them custom per the client and per the reason code and per the instance. So for example, for a fraud reason code chargeback, I might make three or four templates. One for family fraud, one for buyer's remorse, one for if billing and shipping match, what if they don't? Like there's different, it, It varies by the merchant. That's what I mean by per reason code and per instance. Plug in the correct information for each cardholder. And that's not only efficient for you, but that way, if you start to see, okay, we're getting a lot of second time chargebacks, you can go back to the exact template and tinker it. Whereas if you're making stuff up for each one, not making it up, but if you're recreating a response document for every single chargeback, not only is that extremely time intensive, But you're also not really able to course correct or change things as easy because you don't know what to change and you don't know which responses to change. Only respond to the reason code. It's kind of like going to court and you're being accused of something and you just want to provide the facts and you want to provide it to the case that has been brought against you. So if you're in court for robbery, You want to just respond to the complaints about the robbery. You don't want to accidentally give them a way to charge you for something else. So maybe we can't charge them for robbery, but maybe we can charge them for something else because they gave us so much information. That's, uh, and, and giving the right information is so important. I've seen some templates by some companies where, you know, it's a fraud reason code, but they're giving the refund policy. And it's like, well, the cardholders claiming that the card, that they weren't the ones using the card. So how does the refund policy apply here? So it's important to respond just to the reason code, but also provide the right information for that reason code. I have seen before a merchant provide all of the information that they had for the cardholder, whether it was asked for or not. And then once the bank saw their full hand, especially on a high dollar chargeback, they then filed a second chargeback, but for a different reason code. It's pretty uncommon that that happens, but... Always better safe than sorry. That's uh, how I work with merchants to respond to chargebacks. A lot of times, the merchants I'm working with are going to be responding in house, and that's a decision that they have to make based on, you know, FTEs versus other things. I did want to have one more point about chargeback vendors. There's really three different options on how you respond to chargebacks. The first one is 100% in house. So, there's a lot of pros to that. You know, the best people to know your business and respond to Complaints about your business and your policies and everything else are the people that, that know your business, but also they can start to see patterns. They can start to see, wow, we're getting a lot of chargebacks on this one product. Maybe we're not describing it right, or maybe it doesn't work. You know, they'll start to see patterns with fraud. They might discover a fraud ring because a lot of the the fraud chargebacks you're getting that are true hostile fraud are chargeback. Almost all of them are chargebacks you haven't caught. They're missed fraud. That's a great opportunity for your fraud department to go, oh, wow, um, we missed this entire fraud ring or, you know, we missed this behavior. We need to be looking at this. We need to change our rules. But the negatives on doing it 100% in-house is that it is time consuming. It's depending on your volume. It might be a few, you know, in-house analysts so, you know, some companies prefer to have a line item and to invoice rather than have extra FTEs. So those are all things you have to think about. Another option for how to respond to chargebacks is to go with a 100% vendor. A lot of times there isn't strong in most cases there isn't strong reporting to help you understand where your chargebacks are coming in so that you can then uh, look at the behavior and do the root cause analysis like I said and there's a lot of companies that just do that and they don't ever look at the root cause analysis and that's okay that's your decision that's just how I you know if I'm asked to come in and look at help a company with chargebacks I offer them full data analysis the custom templates both or by themselves. And most of the time, my clients are selecting both because it's really helpful to kind of have like a just an extra set of eyes to figure out where they're coming from. And it's a pretty cool thing for them to go to their bosses and go, well, not only did we increase our responses, but we also reduced our chargebacks. So uh, where's my raise? It's a pretty big win, you know, so a lot of times they don't provide the reporting that's insightful enough to know where you need to reduce your chargebacks. But also it can be very expensive. I mean, not all vendors are are created equal. So some are more transparent than others. Some are just better than others. And um again, I'm not naming names on this podcast, but chargebacks are subjective. They're not all created equal. And I think that a lot of merchants believe that all chargeback companies are the same. They aren't. They don't do things the same. Their pricing is very different. Their pricing structure is different from one to the other. And really, I've found that the pricing structure really can be telling on weaknesses or strengths of a chargeback provider. So what do I mean by that? There's some that, at least in the past, I don't know if any are currently doing this now, but there were some that would count first-time chargebacks as a win and they would take a contingency fee. So if you have a 30% contingency fee, it sounds awesome. Like, hey, we only pay them when we when they win us something. That's awesome. If I find $10 on the ground and I have to give you $3 or $4, I'm still making money. But what a lot of people don't understand is that at least at one point, there were a couple providers that were charging that contingency fee on a first time, but then a second time chargeback would come in. So you've now paid way more than you would have if you just wouldn't have responded. So that's one example. There's other pricing structures where you will only pay for the chargebacks so they fight. Well, a lot of times that lends itself to them fighting every single chargeback. This is definitely not meant to be a slam on chargeback providers. There are a couple or a few that I do think are good. I've gone through the demos of most and also heard a lot of merchant feedback, including from former clients. That's what I base my opinions on primarily. When I start to get, when I get like one or two merchants complaining about a provider, whether it's in chargebacks or fraud or payments... I don't really pay much attention to it, but when I start hearing several complain and they're all very similar, I do pay attention to that in, you know, who I recommend for merchants when they ask me. So that's where this is coming from. It's not coming from personal bias. It's legitimately coming from observations and in the industry and from merchant feedback. Another thing to look at, questions to ask, you know, when you're looking at a provider, if that's what you're, the route you wanna go into is obviously the pricing structure, um, how they count their wins, as I said. Are they using human resources or an automated approach? I've noticed that some companies that use overseas analysts to respond to chargebacks lack the context for a lot of the business models in the US. So that can be a challenge with responding to chargebacks. It can be difficult for example, anyone to respond to a chargeback about a flight, especially if it's, you know, they made it to the gate, but they didn't make it on the plane or whatever else it is, all the confusing stuff. If they've never been on an airplane before, it can be difficult to convey what the story of what happened. So that's something to keep in mind. Also, be wary of any company that says that they have guaranteed win rates, and especially if they're saying that before they even look at your chargeback data again, like I've said before, chargebacks are subjective. Sometimes I joke with my clients that your win rate depends on, you know, everything from how your, how your response documentation was created. Absolutely. But also was the analyst at your merchant processor, did they have breakfast this morning? Were they in a fight the night before? Like, you know, because it, it is, there are humans involved in the process. And so I don't believe that anyone can provide a good idea of what a realistic win rate is until they dive into your chargebacks. They're really looking at the specifics and and until they start to respond to them and see. And yeah, that's a squishy ROI, but it's much better than saying, I guarantee that you're going to get 45% of your chargebacks. We're going to win and then not have that happen. Because in some cases, I've actually seen reporting manipulated to try to match the guarantee. And so it's just, you know, just be wary of it. And like I said, there are some good ones out there because I know chargebacks and because I understand them, I'm probably harder on chargebacks than most fraud providers and and payments providers as well. So I will say that with my perspective is probably a little more biased. That doesn't mean that you're not gonna have a great experience with any of them. It's just that I've, been in the industry a long time and I hear a lot and I again I believe in my philosophy. Take it or leave it. So the other option for responding to chargebacks is really a hybrid data approach or hybrid approach. And this is really new. So there's only one company I know of that's doing it. There's a second company that's about to do it. I know this because they're both talking to me about using this system for my templates for my clients, just my clients, which would honestly make it a lot easier and make it so that I can take on a lot more clients. I'm kind of excited about that. But I'm in the process of looking at both tools and knowing the pricing because I want it to be fair to my clients and all that. I do think it's really interesting. So there's a subset of merchants who don't want it to be 100% in the hands of a vendor, but do want to create some operational efficiencies within their business for responding to chargebacks. And everyone knows one of the longest taking things is to match up, pull all the data from your processor, match it up with the system, with your internal system, as well as fill out the documentation with all the transaction information. So they actually pull all that information from your provider for you and auto-populate a template. Whether it's their template or my template is going to vary on which one of the two providers I choose and when I make this available, hopefully by end of May. Uh, That's certainly not a plug for me or my business. It's just Full transparency over here, but basically, so they'll upload everything into a portal and match it into your system. So all you have to do is upload d- documents. Maybe it's tracking information or screenshots from your system, or you know, depending on the chargeback reason code and what's required. There's different pieces of documentation to add to the template. So they make it really easy and really cut the time for an analyst in house like by a th- by two thirds. So really, it's just a third of the time. I like this solution, but I think that you have to have an FTE and you have to have a budget for outsourcing it. So there's both. I think it's a great solution. It's something that I've definitely thought about, like, starting my own chargeback company at one point. A, I picked the wrong business partner. Um, And B, I just found that I am not made for Creating a company from scratch. I do not have the stomach for it. Creating my own consultancy from nothing was uh, hard enough. It wasn't for me, but I do believe in this model as an option. And I think that really at the end of the day, it's important for you guys to pick the option that's best for your business that can give you the best bang for your buck, as well as that you have a partner that you believe has your best interest at heart isn't just, you know, in it for the money or whatever else. And there are sometimes when I refer to providers, I'm chargeback providers, I'm more thinking of ones that were in the past. So keep that in mind as well. I always kind of forget who's still around and who's not, (laughs) which I'm laughing at myself, not at the fact that there's been some that have come and gone. I've been working in chargebacks for almost 15 years. So (laughs) bear with me on that one. I know that was a ton of information and not as much fun as when Brett's on the podcast at all. I knew that I would have so much information that I wanted to share with everyone, especially to answer a lot of the most common questions that I get about chargebacks, that it just made sense for me to just hop on my microphone and do a Kind of a data dump, basically, or a brain dump, uh, well after nine o'clock on a Saturday. Which, gosh, I'm really boring right now, but <laughs> I just feel like I'm doing nothing but working and sleeping and taking my kid to school. So yeah, if I didn't make a hundred percent sense, that's why. I hope that this is really helpful for those of you who have been asking me for the last six months to do a podcast episode on. Chargebacks on my favorite subject. I'm using quotation marks. Literally, one of our listeners sent me a note several months ago and said, Hey, Carice, could you mind hopping on a call with me and some of my team to talk about, you know, possibly hiring you for chargebacks? We know it's your favorite subject and with a smiley face and i was like oh man it's really come across that way huh but it's true and again i love them cuz they're challenging cuz i understand them and for whatever reason i have a brain that just gets it and i know that most people just want to bury their head in the sand and i don't blame you with that i'm going to wrap it up usually brett's the one who's like okay are we done now i need to uh, yeah tell my own self to shut up all right so that is it for our oh well, my episode today thanks for joining me and I do hope you learned a lot. As always, we have a lot of topics to cover to protect your company from fraud and also just from chargebacks from losses from your good customers. Make sure that you subscribe to online fraudcast to be alerted when a new episode's out. And especially as part of the contest, tell your friends and rate and review on iTunes. We can only capture it if it's a review on iTunes for the contest, just FYI, as well as use the hashtag online frogcast when you're posting about online broadcast if you're not sharing one that we've posted so just remember those things we really are looking forward to doing those Whenever you guys share, it helps your friends and other people in the industry learn about us as well. And we're so grateful for the explosive growth we've had, but we know there's lots of people we haven't reached yet. Also, we always love to hear from you. I have a feeling I'll be getting a lot of questions about chargebacks. I love them and please keep them coming. Just know that I feel like I'm always behind on LinkedIn messages. Also, especially since I've been sick, or you can also email me too. It's K-A-R-I-S-S-E at chargelyticsconsulting.com. Now that you've listened to my philosophy in chargebacks, you might understand why I named my company after Chargeback Analytics, basically. But that's C-H-A-R-G-E-L-Y-T-I-C-S- dot com. I feel like I'm on a spelling bee <laughs> but if you just want email me sometimes that's faster and I'm fine with that so but let us know how we can improve and what topics you want us to hear we always weave them in whenever we can and you can find us on Facebook on our website onlinefrogcast.com or as always individually on LinkedIn so until next time stay informed stay vigilant and stay secure We'll be